Alright, so I was recording and it just stopped, so welcome back to Just a Girl in True Crime. I'm your host, Heaven. Um, the last case we talked about was Eileen Warnost. Um, I've had some people, you know, tell me that they side with Eileen um, because of her childhood. Each has their own opinion. Um, I definitely don't agree with what she did, but hey, you know, we're not all the same. Anyway, we are going to be talking about Jeanette de Palma, and it is an unsolved um, case. There's just a lot. So, she was born on August 3rd in 1956. She lived in a fairly large house on Clearview Road, Road in an upper-slash-middle-class like neighborhood. It was in the town of Springfield, New Jersey, and... They, um, it said that I didn't write this down, but I, I saw it, like, when she, like, looked out or whatever, she could see, like, the skyline of Manhattan or something like that, so that's, that was probably beautiful. Um, and, you know, the place was said to be, like, very nice. It was, like, an idyllic place, like, to live. It was perfect to raise a family, and that's why the Del Palmas you know, wanted to settle down there and, like, you know, raise their family. The family was big on religion, and, you know, they had good morals. They um, were Christians and stuff like that. Um, And many people describe Jeanette as a good Christian girl, though, you know, she did have a wild side. And, you know, what kid really doesn't? And, you know, she... She was really just trying to figure out who she was. And, you know, there's no harm in that. Um, They were a big Italian family. They had five daughters and they had three sons. And they were a very extremely happy family. Parents were Salvatore and Florence. Um, Jeanette's reputation in the community was excellent. Now, Jeanette had just turned 16, 16 years old when she went missing in 1972 in the late in the late summer and on august 7th jeanette told her mom that you know she was going to hitchhike to a friend's house and then she had planned to go to work later that afternoon um and she was hitchhiking to go catch a train to go there her friends now you know we all know we shouldn't hitchhike now because you know you're taught um don't get in the car with strangers, but you have to remember back in the um, 1970s, um, it was a very common thing like people practiced and that they did. You know, like I said, it's also funny because, you know, growing up, we were always told don't get in a car with strangers, stranger danger and all that stuff like that. Um... But, you know, there's Uber and Lyft and people all the time get into cars with strangers. I mean, myself included. I've got, I've taken Ubers before. I've never taken Lyft, but I've taken Ubers. And, you know, a couple cases, you know, I've been scared. But, you know, the good thing about with an Uber, and I'm pretty sure Lyft has it as well, you can share your ride with, like, a spouse, a friend, like, family, so they can keep track of, like, where you're going. Um... So, you know, I'm just paranoid and, you know, I always got scared, but it's okay. 
Um, back to the story. Now, Jeanette also told her mom... Oh, I'm sorry. I said that she was planning on going to work. I don't know where she worked. Um, I just knew she was going to work. Now, her parents started to worry, um, later that night because it was discovered later that Jeanette never made it to her friend's house. And, you know, maybe her parents thought that, okay, maybe she couldn't get there on time. She just decided to go to work. I, I don't know. That's what I would assume, but I'm not sure. Um, when it became like late, came later that night, she still hadn't like returned home and her mom and dad got like very worried. So they decided to call the police and they decided to report her missing. Now, not much has really happened like when she was missing. Um, I guess there was no leads, no nothing. And it would be another six weeks before Jeanette was actually found. And, you know, like, that's just terrible because as a parent myself, I could not imagine the pain and the torture her parents went through for six weeks um without like any answers because I would be I wouldn't sleep I wouldn't eat every phone call that I get I think I would dread to pick it up but let's jump to six weeks let's jump six weeks forward and we're gonna go to September 19th in 1972 a dog and his owner you know I guess they were just like the dog was just running or they were on a walk or something um and they weren't too far from Jeanette's home in Springfield um, and, you know, the dog ended up, like, running, and what he came back with, I would assume, shook his, uh, owner to the core, because it would shook, it shook, it would shake, scare, I guess, it would shook me, shake me to my core? Yeah, I guess it wouldn't be, it shook me to my core. I don't know, maybe. Um, I mean, that's what I'd like to think. And, you know, when the dog came back, um, he actually came back with a badly decomposed arm a fucking arm guys there it didn't take authorities long to find where the remains had you know originated from Jeanette's body was found a short distance from the apartment complex where the dog and his owner resided in the Huladale quarry near Watchin Watchinung Watchinung reservation sorry if i mispronounced that the rock um her body rested on is known locally as devil's teeth now the police you know they obviously start their investigation quickly and this is where things you know get a little weird if you want to say that when they got to devil's teeth a body was found face down allegedly surrounded by crosses and she had like stones and she had logs like positioned um in like a coffin pattern and other eyewitnesses accounts suggested that there was a pentagram and other occult objects to make a makeshift grave i'm sorry makeshift coffin the body was found fully clothed and it was solely so badly decomposed that the initial cause of death really couldn't be determined. In fact, it actually took dental records to, you know, really identify this body as Jeanette's. 
but once the investigation once the investigators were sure they found her remains um you know the media did what they always did and they just had a they just had a field day with it like with all the speculation now at the time of Jeanette's death the famous uh satanic panic of the 1980s uh was yet to come but still the publication of Anton Love Levy's Satanic Bible, the popularity of the film Rosemary's Baby, the freshness of the Manson family murders in the collective um, you know, culture contributed to a growing belief in a sinister force from the underworld permitting um pre-meeting American culture. This is how like the media was basically spinning it. Um, now, like we stated, the family was very close um, to their faith and such. And the police, you know, initially believed that Jeanette's um, death was a part of an occult ritual. Um, it didn't help that at the time near the reservation, um, there was an area commonly used for neo-pagans to practice their naturalistic faiths. Police were also convinced that there was a connection between the two that they even brought it, brought a witch like to investigate to investigate the case further, which, you know, that's a little weird. But alright, each has their own. Um, as the media ran with every bit of speculation surrounding the alleged satanic sacrifice of the pretty teenager, because she was pretty. While Union County authorities, they decided, I mean, they declined to comment. They're like, nope, we're not doing it. On the mysterious death of Jeanette Del Palma. Um, informed sources confirmed that there is evidence to indicate the involvement of a teenage satanic worshippers. Blared one article which added the books on the occult had to be kept under lock and key because they were stolen at such a high rate as to imply that the two were connected somehow. Now, the New York Daily News was no better with their coverage either. On October 4th, 1972, the newspaper in interviewed Reverend um, James Tate, who insisted that the devil disciples killed poor Jeanette when she tried to spread the word to spread the good word of Jesus Christ. I don't like saying God's name in vain, but it was in there, so I decided to put it in there. Um, they, he said that she was so religious that she would often talk to friends and acquaintances about God. He uh, said, adding that when the heathens were lectured about power of Christ, you know, they just decided to uh, kill her. Now, let's talk about some theories, because this case is very short, um, and it's very crazy. Now, people think, um, now we're going to talk about, like, what people, some theories of, like, what people actually thought happened. And the first one we just talked about, which was the satanic ritual, like, the occult, and that was obviously the most popular one. But others, you know, abound like thought of different things of what happened and one being the theory is that she overdosed while she was hanging out with her friends who subsequently dumped her body in the quarry 
in like a state of panic. Another theory holds that Jeanette was a victim of a crime of opportunity and that she may have been killed by the same man who killed Mary Ann Pryor and Lorraine Kelly, both whom were found in a heavily wooded area, just like Jeanette. The case eventually died down in the late 1990s when the Weird New Jersey Magazine, which now is a website today, began reporting on the case after receiving several letters that allegedly gave an, gave exclusive details to these like um writers. The editor, his name was Mark Maron, and he subsequently teamed up with a writer named Jesse Pollack to write what is considered the definite uh book on the subject and it's called Death on the Devil's Teeth. I think I'm going to look that up because it looks pretty interesting. In the book, uh, Mark and Jesse revealed that their research led up to several previously unknown suspects, evidence of a cover-up, and even connections, and even connections of other previously unsolved murders. Most of the evidence of Jeanette De Paula case however you know was allegedly destroyed in her um hurricane floyd in 1999 but that didn't stop mark and jesse and they you know continued to research this case and after a man named l um not l i'm sorry ed salzano who runs justice for uh jeanette uh de palma a facebook page he unsuccessfully sued the county to obtain DNA evidence um, in February 2021. I read somewhere that he is her friend's, like, nephew or whatever, and he's, like, really trying to get it out there. Um, But Mark and Jesse, you know, they ended up finally obtaining the case file from Union County prosecutor's office under a freedom of information act or if you want to abbreviate it it's the foia request the revelations contained in the documents were quite clear there was no evidence of an occult activity an animal sacrifice or anything else that would suggest a satanic nature however her necklace and her purse were stolen from her, suggesting that this could be like a possible motive. Still, to this day, you know, her cause of death actually remains unknown. It was never ruled a homicide, an accident. They just, they don't know. So they say. Um, but, you know, like I said, this case still remains open. Um... I don't know what to think about it. I think it's a very strange case. And, you know, guys, that's really all we know. Um, And because I knew this was going to be a shorter one, I decided to do another case on top of this. So you get, like, two cases in one. I mean, it took me almost till, like, 8.45 to write this stuff because I just researched everything today. So you're going to get another case. And this case is Damon and Devin Routier. And I didn't go in, oh, I didn't go a lot into, like, a backstory with this one. I found it, like, on Unsolved Mysteries, like, website, and then I just did research. 
Um, so on the night of June 6th in 1996, and there's a lot of D's, so if I mess stuff up, I'm sorry, it's a lot of D's. Darlie Lynn Reuter made a frantic call to 911. Um, she ended up telling the dispatcher that she and her two sons had been stabbed. Five minutes later, police arrive at Darlie's home in Rolette, a suburb of Dallas. Um, her old Darlie's oldest son, Devin, um, he ended up already dying from four knife wounds, which is very sad. And he was just only three days shy of his seventh birthday. His brother was five-year-old Damon, and he also had been attacked, but Damon actually later died in the care of a paramedic. Um, Darlie, she had a deep gash in her neck, and she had wounds on her arms. She was immediately transported to a local hospital for emergency, emergency surgery, and she um, survived. Now, Darlie told a detailed story about how this man broke into her home, and when she woke up, he was standing over her, so she says, and then he attacked them. He stabbed her sons to death, and Darlie described the attacker as a white male about six feet tall, and that's really, I guess, all she could remember. Um... One second. Okay. Um, and she said all this stuff while she was, like, sedated or whatever. Um, and she told... Okay, I just want to make sure I'm still recording. Okay. Um, she said that her husband, Darren, was sleeping upstairs with their eight-month-old son, Drake, and that... Her and her two sons, you know, they fell asleep in the family room while watching TV. And this all happened at 2.30 in the morning. All right, so that's where we're at. Um, when police arrived, you know, they found like a window screen um, in the garage that actually had been cut, suggesting like it was the entryway for the attacker to gain access to the home. And they eventually, like, they did interview her husband. Um, And, like, he said he heard this scream and he, like, ran down the stairs. And Darlie was, you know, at this point she was yelling, like, Devin, 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 Devin. And he said, you know, like, she was just really freaking out. And he said he saw, like, Devin got these two huge gashes, like, on the top of his chest. He's laying face up. And he said he's just, like, blinking his eyes. And, um, Darren, he's, like, trying, he's thinking, you know, CPR. He's, like, okay, I have to prop his head up. And he has to start, like, blowing into his mouth. And as soon as I blow into his mouth, air comes out of his chest. And then he said, you know, blood splattered all over him. And he also said, not only have you just have been woken up to, like, the worst nightmare in your whole life, but your child is literally dying in front of you. And you just don't know what to do. Now, um, investigators did not question Darren's story. Because they are like, yeah, that makes sense. Um, but, you know, Darlie's story over here um, just wasn't making sense to investigators. And you know, every story has their holes. And that's what Darlie's um, story was just becoming.
They were troubled by her statement, and they said they just didn't understand how she could have slept through this attack and not give a clear description of her assailant other than, like, how tall he was. I mean, if he was right over her, like, you would be able to see more. Um, which is very weird. Now, not long after, her, um, not long after, a, um, how do I want to put this? An infamous video soon, like, surfaced, and it showed her laughing and spraying silly string around her son's grave. And then it wasn't long before, like, many people started to wonder whether Darlie had, in fact, killed her sons herself. Now, forensic analysts showed evidence that there was, incons- there was like, inconsistencies with what Darlie had told the police. And the, suspi- the suspicion began to form around her. For starters, the, mur- the murder weapon. It was a knife. And it came from um, their own kitchen, which, you know, that raises some suspicion from the start that there had been an intruder. Secondly, a motive for the break-in was very unclear, but it seemed unlikely that it was like a robbery as there were many valuable um, things just like laying around the home in plain sight and nothing was taken. Okay. Furthermore, forensic analysts um, they said stuff about the blood splatters around the house revealed patterns that they were inconsistent with Darley's version of events. The patterns of blood drops in the kitchen seemed to come from someone who had just been standing still and not running after her attacker as Darley claimed that she had done. Next, the blood splatter on the back shoulder of Darley's nightshirt was um, consistent with the idea that she was the one that had did the stabbing. And the puncture wounds in the shirt didn't match any of the wounds on her body, suggesting that the shirt was perhaps purposefully stabbed by her to help serve as evidence for her cover-up story. In addition, forensic analysts found evidence of large, of large amounts of Darley's blood in and around the kitchen sink, suggesting that she had stood at the kitchen sink, okay, to cut her own throat and arm. I mean, okay, if you did that, why? why? Like, that makes no sense. God damn. And this is, and this is, um, what someone who purpose, purposefully cut themselves in order to have wounds wounds to show like as evidence to like the authorities as like a cover-up might do going like look my sons were my one my sons were killed i was attacked and stuff like that okay finally forensic experts found evidence of fiberglass um rods on a bread knife in the kitchen Um, that matched the fiberglass rods from the window screen that had been cut in the garage. Police also say that they have, um, she had bleach blonde hair 
They also found a hair, like her long piece of bleach blonde hair as well. And authorities, you know, thought that they originally thought that when the garage window was cut, it was obviously, like I said, to the entry point to go into the house, right? But they said, why would an intruder put the knife back in the, like, in the kitchen? That, that doesn't make sense. It seemed as though the intruder had been in the house the whole time. And her husband was home. But, you know, like Darren told police and she told police that Darren was upstairs, you know, with their infant Drake the whole time. So they she was the main one that they were essentially looking at. And they also say the 911 call soon like became suspicious as well. Officer um, officers testified that Darley seemed like eerily calm during the phone call. She was very alert and. They said she failed to follow instructions when applying pressure to Damon's wound. But there's advocates out here who are saying, no, she's innocent, and they're trying to prove it. And they're trying to prove the fact that she was screaming during this phone call and that she may, and that's why she may not have followed, you know, the instructions because she was simply in shock. What is even more strange is that she told them, she told the dispatcher, that she touched the knife, saying, I wonder if we could have gotten the prints, maybe. As Officer David Waddell said at trial, I thought if she was worried about fingerprints on the knife, she could certainly take care of her kids. So the call ends, and, you know, everyone obviously comes. And it seemed incriminating that Darley didn't follow the the um paramedics as they took Damon away and she didn't even ask like where they were taking him later nurses said that her behavior upon Damon's death wasn't what you would expect from a mother who just lost two of her children but in defense but in de- her defense um they would later claim that Darley wouldn't have had time you know basically to stage a crime scene and that an unidentified bloody unidentified bloody fingerprints on the coffee table and the garage likely came from the alleged intruder. The most damning evidence against her was herself. She ended up inviting local um, news crews to film her, her family, and her friends um, to celebrate, um, basically like celebrating what would have been her son Devin's seventh birthday at the gravesite, eight hour, um, not eight hours, eight days like after their deaths. Cameras actually captured her laughing, chewing gum, singing, and then spraying the silly string like on their headstones, graves. And the prosecutor, Greg Davis Scott, saw the video and he decided to seize it as proof that she actually showed no grief over the death death of her sons and her upbeat behavior seemed very unusual for a woman who just lost her two sons merely a week ago four days later the video was released and she was eventually arrested and she was charged with premeditated murder 
during the trial, the prosecutor, you know, relied very heavily on this video at the gravesite birthday ceremony. They claim that, as in they prosecution, that she was a sh she was shallow and she was very materialistic woman with no remorse, and they said she wanted her sons gone because they were too much responsibility, and they got in the way of her desired lifestyle. Now her defense team countered that, and they said she basically had no motive to murder her own children, but the prosecution ended up saying that her motive was that she was no longer the glamorous blonde or center of attention, and she was angry at her kids for that. Furthermore, the defense said that the wound on her neck was only two inches away from her uh, main carotid artery, which was consistent, which was not consistent with like a self-defense or a self-inflicted in injury. Um, her supporters also pointed out the silly string video, right? They said that the video was basically edited and it was to make her appear heartless and that she actually held a somber ceremony, um, ceremony honoring the two boys before, before the more jovial birthday party. However, cameras like never showed it. That's what her like supporters or advocates, whatever you want to call them, that's what they said. Um, we don't know. That's crazy. If you she uh, did do, if she did that, that's terrifying. I mean, that's ridiculous and upsetting. Like, oh my god. Um, her mother, Darley Keen, told um the Dallas Morning News, "Silly string is not a lethal weapon." Which, no, it's not, but you shouldn't, like, you know, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Is it desecrate? Desecrate their graves? I think that's it. I don't know. Um, and Darley, you know, she also spoke about the video, saying that he wanted to be seven. I did the only thing I knew how to basically honor him and give him all the wishes because he wasn't here anymore. And then she said, but how do you know what you're going to do when you lose two children? How do you know you're going, how do you know you're going to act, going to act? Her family um, insists that crucial evidence was actually looked over on, like, looked over, like, on or during her trial. Um, so, you know, the prosecution and her defense lawyers, you know, they basically battled it out in court. Um, and she was found guilty of first-degree murder of Damon on February 4th in 1997, and she was sent to death row because she's waiting to be executed. Um, after years of legal wrangling, Darley appeared, I'm sorry, Darley appealed her conviction in 2001 only to have it upheld in 2003. Four years later, her attorneys asked um, that DNA testing, which they feel will actually exonerate her, um, to be used, though, you know, it still hasn't yet to be done. And those who believe that she's innocent, 
often cite, you know, obviously the lack of evidence um, or the lack of DNA evidence and the fact that there was a bloody sock, a bloody sock presumably belonging to this alleged intruder and it was actually found in the alleyway behind the family home. Now, the police say that the sock was basically part of like a cover-up um, and they say one of the characteristics of the ca- of cases where mothers are involved in killing the children, killing of the children, is that after the fact, there's like a very amateuristic cover up. No one wants to believe that a mother would do something like this to their children. But at some point, when you're presented with this type of overwhelming physical evidence, you have to start accepting some of it. And a week and a half. After the murders, uh, Darley was interrogated by a detective reportedly known for extracting confessions from suspects, according to Sergeant Pose. And Darley stated that if she did commit these murders, that she actually had no recollection. The detective who conducted this interview said it was never recorded, which I find very strange about that because, you know, if you interview a suspect or anything in an interrogation room, it should always be recorded. Now, Darley's mother was confident that her daughter actually never made that incriminating statement. And she said that it should have been audio taped and videotaped, but yet on this high-profile case, he didn't have an audio tape or a videotape, which I think is a total lie. And her attorneys um, and investigators say that the evidence, was, evidence used against her was flawed, loyal, Lloyd Harrell was a private investigator for the defense, and he said when the officers examined the window, which had been cut, they found no dust disturbed on the windowsill, and that they, like I said, they also found that blonde hair that was stuck into the screen area, and they just assumed that it was Darley's hair. But, um, because I forgot to put this, later that hair, though, um, through DNA examination, it was actually determined to be a roulette police officer, which is weird. Um, the window is still 10 inches off the floor. If you went through the window and crouched down and put one leg through the window, it's more probable you wouldn't disturb the dust than you would disturb. Probably you wouldn't disturb the dust than you would disturb the dust. Okay, I wanted to make sure I read that right. Um. And, you know, they basically, like they said, that it was, the sock was a cover-up. Um, also at trial, a medical examiner testified that Darlene's wound were super uh, superficial and they were self-inflicted. But then that's when the defense were like, nope, she didn't cut, she didn't cut, um, she didn't self-inflict that knife thing. A wound this severe would have killed her instantly. The defense also attacked the theory that she committed the murders to collect, um, to collect on. The defense also attacked the theory that she committed the murders to collect on her boy's life insurance policy, which totaled to five thousand dollars. According to Darley's attorney, if money was the motive, why wouldn't she kill her husband? who was insured for $800,000. 
So it's, it is crazy. I mean, I just don't even know. Um, obviously the silly string video, they did play it for the jury and they ended up watching the video eight times. It actually took them 10 hours to reach a guilty verdict. And she was immediately taken to death row at Gatesville State Prison. Um, and she's currently waiting execution. And you know, that's crazy. Now, one of, um, you know, like after her parents, and, like, Parents and attorney, attorney said that, like, all that stuff was overlooked. They say that the photos of her wounds were not properly presented to the jury. And after the trial, one of the jurors actually who convicted Darley, his name is Charles Stamford, had a chance, like, to basically take, like, a closer look at the pictures. And he said, after I saw the pictures, it made me feel that she's not guilty. She did not cut herself. And that she put up a heck of a fight to protect her own self. I believe within all my heart that um, she is innocent. There's not a doubt in my mind. Which, wow, I did not see that. Um, This sock, it contains the boy's blood. And probably um, like some skin DNA. But, you know, there's no blood stains that belong to Darley on the sock. So, obviously, it had to be touched by someone after both boys had been stabbed. Who also had contact with Darley. And, um... You know. That's crazy. Um, so that's that. Um, but she did speak in prison. Um... She said from prison, um, this was just after her son's death, I did not kill my children. That's ridiculous. All of a sudden, I woke up, stabbed my kids, tried to slip my head off. Come on. Whether it's true or false, we actually may never know what happened. I'm kind of on the fence about this case. I mean, I have a lot of... I mean, I have a lot of, um, I have a lot of questions. Um, her family also believes that it might have been an attacker who, um, who may have been a sexual predator. Um, and they said that there was actually a series of violent rapes that occurred in the Dallas area at the same time as, you know, her kids were murdered. And these crimes were quite similar to the attack on Darley and her children. The assailant entered the unlocked homes of victims, attacked them with knives found in the kitchen, and wore tube socks over his hands to avoid leaving fingerprints. It's actually kind of smart. Um, as far as I know, her lawyers are still trying to, con trying to appeal her sentence, and if those appeals, you know, are all exhausted, I think you get so many when you're on death row, um, she will, you know, be executed. Um, I've looked up a picture of her and whatnot. And I don't know. I mean, 
it's hard to i mean i'm not gonna say it's like hard to, i mean it's hard for yes a mother to be like i you know for a mom to kill her kids but it happens and stuff like that but this case doesn't seem like all cut and dry to me because there's no actual like physical physical evidence i mean yeah i mean other than like some of the stuff but i don't i don't know guys but that's those are the two cases that i did um what else oh um listen i wanted to put this out here listen if you're gonna you're gonna follow me on instagram or not even follow me if you're just gonna say rude comments um earlier this week i got it said i had a message on my instagram and i didn't prove it this person like got to casey anthony case and He just, they just, he just said some stuff. <laughs> um, for, well, he called me boo, and I'm like, first off, don't call me boo. And then he ended up calling me sugar tits, or uh, sugar nipples, and that, you know, don't, uh, don't, uh, don't email Instagram me if you're gonna insult me. Please don't, because that's a little weird. Um, but guys, that's it. If you like this podcast, you can give us a five-star rating or whatever you prefer. You can like the Facebook page at Just a Girl in True Crime. You can follow our Instagram at Just a Girl in True Crime. You can send me a Gmail at Just a Girl in True Crime at gmail.com. You can follow our YouTube at Just a Girl in True Crime. You can also follow the TikTok, um, and it is called Heaven's Crime. I just a girl in true crime was too long to put, so I had to put Heaven's Crime, which is my first name. Um, but that's it, you know. Um, I hope if I don't, I might record one. I might record Saturday after I get off at work at nine. But if I don't, um, I hope you guys have a great Memorial Day. Hope you're safe. Have a good time with friends, family yourself your significant other your kids your dog your cat your fish you know whatever you want to do you you just do it there's a lot of sirens going on outside so if you hear that you know sirens are always passing my damn house um but guys that's it i'm about to head off here i'm probably gonna watch some snapped and yeah i think that's it i mean i made it for like 43 minutes which is good. I didn't want it too short. Didn't want it too long. So this is right in the middle. And I'll be seeing you guys later.